This is the Voice Podcast Network. Hey guys, welcome to Horror Saxa, a true crime podcast focusing on cases in Georgetown and the DMV area. I'm your co-host, Brett Rouch. And I'm Amelia Shotwell. Thanks for tuning in. As a warning, today's episode contains sexual assault and graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. While looking for music for today's episode, we discovered that the classic What a Wonderful World was the favorite song of Robert Wan, the victim of today's case. This song starkly contrasts the murderous tunes we usually play, but considering the unexpected and mysterious nature of this crime, this song somehow becomes the even eerier. The rainbow, so pretty in the sky also on the faces of people going by I see friends shaking hands saying how do you do As Brett mentioned, we will be covering the murder and mystery of Robert Wohn in our episode today. Working late, Wohn decided to spend the night at a friend's house. Little did he know this would be the last night of his life. We'll start by highlighting the events leading up to this graphic murder. Robert Wan was born on June 1, 1974, in Manhattan and was raised in Brooklyn. He went to college on a scholarship at William & Mary and was very active in the student community. He joined a fraternity, was a member of multiple honoris societies, and restarted the 13 Club, which did anonymous good deeds on campus. He was also involved in student government, through which he met and became friends with a student named Joseph Price. Juan graduated in 1996 and received the prestigious Algernon Sidney Sullivan Award, intended for students excelling in heart, mind, and helpfulness to others. He then attended law school at University of Pennsylvania and graduated cum laude in 1999. He passed the bar exam, clerked for a federal judge in Eastern Virginia for a year, and then joined Covington and Burling, a law firm based in Washington, D.C. In 2002, Robert met Catherine Liu at a conference in Philadelphia, and the two got married a year later. He was still good friends with Joseph Price, who attended their wedding with his boyfriend, Victor Zaborski. When Robert started working in D.C., he and Catherine moved to Oakton, Virginia, and commuted to D.C. together every day. Always looking to be involved in the community, Juan was a board member of the Asian Pacific American Bar Association Educational Fund, a chair of the William & Mary Washington Council, a member of the Virginia Governor's Commission on Community and National Service, and worked on the General Council for Radio Free Asia a nonprofit news service focusing on human rights issues in Asia. Joseph Price and Victor Zaborski also lived in the DMV. They bought a $1.23 million home near DuPont Circle, where they lived with Dylan Ward. Dylan Ward is actually a Georgetown alum. He graduated summa cum laude in 1992 with a degree in foreign service. The three of them formed a throuple, or a kind of three-way sexual relationship. They had a fourth housemate named Sarah Morgan, who lived in the basement. This brings us to the night of August 2nd, 2006. Juan planned on staying late in DC so that he could meet the night shift employees at Radio Free Asia. Rather than commute back to Virginia late in the night, Juan called up his college buddy Joseph Price and asked if he could spend the night at his place. Nothing that unusual, right? As it turned out, housemate Sarah Morgan was on a trip out of town, so he could sleep in her bed. At 9.30 that night, Robert called Catherine, letting her know that he had finished his class and was about to meet the night shift staff. At 10.24, Robert called Price, letting him know he was on his way to his house. He arrived around 10.30 and talked with Price and Dylan Ward before heading to bed. Victor Zaborski was already in bed watching a show called Project Runway. Price joined him around 
Dillon-Ward, after taking some sleeping pills, heard Robert in the shower and started reading a book until he fell asleep. Later in the night, a security alarm went off, signaling that someone had entered the house through the back door. Price and Zaborski assumed it was Sarah Morgan coming home. This is odd, because as we mentioned before, Morgan was never supposed to come home that night. But between 11 and 11.35, William Thomas, who lived in the neighboring house, heard, quote, a scream of desperation. At 11.49, Zaborski called 911, claiming that somebody had entered their house and stabbed Robert Wan. We're going to play the audio of this 911 call. As a warning, what you're about to hear might be distressing. If you don't want to listen to it, please feel free to skip ahead. We have help in route. Thank you. Okay. They are in route to you now. I'm sending the police and the paramedics, okay, to assist. Okay, what I need you to do is go downstairs, okay? The place where, wherever he was stabbed at, I need you to get a dry cloth, okay? And just apply pressure to that area. If he was, wherever he was stabbed at on his body, I need you to take a towel downstairs while you're waiting for the paramedics to arrive and just apply pressure. Even if the rag or towel is saturated with blood, just get another towel and put it on top, but never lift the first towel off the area. Hold it on. Once it gets filled up with blood, just put another towel on top of that and just apply pressure until the paramedics arrive. Yes. Before we break down the call, I would just like to clarify that Victor, the person calling 911, is a man. The operator accidentally mistook his hysterical voice for a woman and thus referred to him as ma'am throughout the audio we just played for you. But that's not the main takeaway of this call. What we learn from Victor is that Someone broke into the house and stabbed their house guest, Robert, relaying that he is unconscious and bleeding from the stomach. Victor asked for an ambulance, unsure whether his guest is alive or dead. And as you heard in the call, the 911 operator coaches Victor on how to aid Robert. She tells him to continually apply pressure to Robert's stomach with rags to stop the bleeding. Considering the nature of the injury, she tells Victor that they may need to utilize another towel if the first one fills up with too much blood. Victor tells the operator that his partner, Joseph, is applying the towel to Wone's body as they speak on the phone. At first, this may seem like a plausible murder story. An unknown man sneaks into a house, perhaps for a botched burglary, and stabs Wone, possibly out of self-defense, before fleeing the scene. But as soon as paramedics rush to the scene, they realize something is very, very off. The EMTs who rushed to the scene were highly experienced, working in the field for a combined 25 years. Nevertheless, they claimed they had never seen a crime scene like the one they found at 1509 Swan Street on August 2nd. The paramedics arrived around 11.54 p.m. that night. When they enter the house, they are told Robert is dying. On their way to find one, they bump into Dylan Ward, again one of the housemates. Dylan does not speak, but rather points down the hall towards the room Robert was staying in, before withdrawing into his own bedroom. From there, the paramedics make their way to Sarah's room, where they first notice something is truly off. When they enter the room, they see Won is lying at an angle on top of the bed. His head is on the pillow, but not yet under the blanket. There are hardly any signs of movement, with only a slight indentation on the pillow Robert is laying on. He is wearing a gray t-shirt and the shorts he normally wore to bed, along with an anti-teeth grinding mouth guard. Perhaps the strangest of all, Joseph is sitting on the edge of the bed in his underwear, his back to the paramedics, when they enter. Joseph is not touching the victim, let alone applying pressure to his wounds. The paramedics' description of the scene is chilling, 
Still, they rushed to aid Robert Wong. Here, they found three stab wounds, two in his abdomen and one in his heart. Holes in the gray shirt indicate Robert was stabbed through his clothing. The wounds penetrated his lungs and heart and were roughly four to five inches deep on the right side of his body. On average, the wounds were about four and a half inches deep. Remember that. Further, one had no defensive wounds, implying he had not struggled and thus was likely incapacitated at this time of death. In his autopsy, they eventually found broken capillaries in his eyes, suggesting he had struggled to breathe and perhaps been smothered. Careful examination also found fresh needle puncture wounds on his right ankle, left side of neck, chest, hand, and inside of left elbow. We'll come back to the autopsy report in a bit, but I'm simply providing all this information now so listeners can understand how truly gruesome this murder was. So gruesome, you'd imagine tons of blood at the scene, right? Right, but there wasn't any blood at all, was there? Exactly. Despite being stabbed in the heart and abdomen, very little blood was found on Robert. There were a few blood spots on his chest. These spots had striation marks in them, as if they had been purposely wiped on the body. Further, there was no blood on Robert's shirt, despite the holes in the clothing suggesting he had been stabbed through it. And the towel Joseph had applied to Wone's body? There was hardly any blood on that either. The towel found in the room had three small spots on it, as if someone had cut themselves cooking and tried to clean it up. Looking at the picture, there is absolutely no way that towel could have been used in any way to stop the blood flow of a man who had been stabbed in the heart. The only real place the paramedics saw blood was on a kitchen knife that was found on the bedside table. However, considering Wong's dire situation, the paramedics didn't have the luxury to address the lack of blood. They instead rushed Wong immediately to the hospital, where he was pronounced dead at 12.25 that night. The three roommates, Dylan, Joseph, and Victor, were all brought in for questioning on the case. All three presented relatively consistent stories, relaying the information that Brett mentioned earlier. As a quick recap, the men said that their roommate Sarah was out of town, so Wone came to spend the night with them after working late. Wone supposedly arrived around 10.30, where he chatted with Dylan and Joseph while Victor, having come home early from a business trip, watched TV up in his room. After dispersing for bed, Dylan said he was reading when he heard Robert go to the shower. From there, Dylan went to sleep. He was eventually woken up by Victor's scream and stepped out of his room to see Joseph pressing towels on a bloody wound. Victor supposedly heard their door chime as if being opened, but did not check as he assumed it was Sarah coming home, even though she was out of town. Next, he heard three low grunts or slow screams, and running downstairs with Joseph, he found Wone with a knife in his chest. While Dylan and Victor's stories were crucial to the case, Joseph's story perhaps sheds the most interesting light on the case. Joseph's story was the same as Victor. He heard the door and the grunts and so on. However, Joseph claims that when he found Robert laying on the bed, a knife from the kitchen was found on his stomach. Joseph then said he moved the knife to the nightstand and lifted Wone's shirt to find lots of blood. From there, Joseph claims he held the towel to Wone's wounds and waited for the paramedics to arrive. While Joseph's gruesome story instantly contrasts with the lack of blood found at the crime scene, there were other peculiar characteristics of his testimony. 
For one, Joseph made it a point to investigators that his fingerprints would be on the knife because he handled the weapon. He emphasized that the killer's fingerprints were probably not on the knife because they would have worn gloves, and thus his prints would be the only ones investigators would find. This seems an odd and obvious point, but Joseph repeated it nonetheless. Further, Joseph kept asking about Dylan. He wanted to know where Dylan was and what he had said in his interview. Price even called his brother to check if Ward was done with his interrogation. His strange and reportedly aggressive attitude towards investigators only thickens the plot, leading us to wonder about both Joseph and Dylan's relation to the murder. Now, just as you may be doing as you listen, investigators begin to propose and develop some theories. One theory they propose is that the murder was part of a botched burglary. However, this theory quickly becomes void as detectives realize no items were stolen from the house. All of the large valuable devices, like TVs, were completely intact. Not only that, at the foot of Robert's bed were two wallets full of cash, a Blackberry phone, an additional cell phone, a watch, and a mouthguard case. Even if the murderer had decided against stealing the larger items in the home, they could have easily snagged a smaller valuable, whether Robert was alive or not. The plausibility of a break-in becomes increasingly unlikely as well, despite Price and Zaborski's firm belief that someone came in through the back door to commit the murder. The police quickly confirmed that the back door was in fact unlocked, as Price and Zaborski said. Yet, the backyard gate leading to the back door was locked. Not only that, the gate surrounding the yard was seven feet tall, meaning the murderer would have had to scale the towering wall to even make it to the back door. Now, as I mentioned before, one's phone was sitting at the end of his bed when investigators arrived. On Robert's phone were two drafted emails. The first was to his wife at 11.05, saying he was about to shower. The second email was from 11.07, confirming a work lunch for the following day. Investigators found it suspicious that the emails were only drafted and never sent, as if someone had written them as a cover-up but did not know how to properly work Wong's phone. Still, this lead eventually led to a dead end as well. Due to a mix-up and miscommunication, Robert's phone was not sent in for fingerprinting, but was instead accidentally returned to Radio Free Asia, where it was wiped and reset, eliminating any potential evidence. So that leaves us with two very important pieces of evidence. The quote-unquote bloody towel and the knife, yes? That's right. After careful examination, investigators begin to realize that the blood marks on the knife were not consistent with the expected splatter pattern of a stabbing. Rather, the blood appeared to have been swiped on the knife. So, detectives proposed the theory that the towel was used to transfer blood onto the knife rather than to apply pressure to Wone's wounds. The theory is further supported when no blood is found on the cutting edge of the knife and cotton fibers from the towel, but not Wone's shirt, were found on the blade. Additionally, the knife from the crime scene was longer than the depth of Robert's stab wounds. As I stated previously, Robert's wounds were about four and a half inches deep. The knife found on the bedside table was five and a half inches. It would be incredibly difficult to stab Robert consistently four and a half inches deep while wielding a knife an inch longer than the wounds. And despite Joseph's warnings, no fingerprints, not even his own, were found on the knife. 
Police would eventually conclude that the bedside knife was not the actual murder weapon and had, in fact, been staged from the kitchen. Before we move on, I would like to address the lack of blood on the scene once again. While Juan's blood was hardly found on the towel, it was found in the rear stairwell drain and the lint filter of clothes dryer. The backyard hose was uncoiled and the drain open as well. Not to mention, when paramedics arrived on the scene, all three housemates were reportedly freshly showered, wearing robes, and acting calmly. Perhaps a combination of these facts provides an eerie explanation for the lack of blood found at the crime scene. Now that brings us back to the autopsy. The forensic pathologist analyzing the body concluded that Wone lived for at least a minute after he was first stabbed. Although the killer appears to have first attempted to smother Wone with a pillow, the pathologist concluded that stabbing was indeed his cause of death. Considering Wone lacked any defensive wounds, it is presumed that he was unconscious as he was murdered. The six fresh needle marks found on the body further indicated that Robert was drugged. Wone's toxicology report actually came up negative for any drugs or substances. However, no testing was ever done for paralytics as far as we know. Continuing with the autopsy, pathologists found semen in multiple places on Wone's body, including his anus. Perhaps even more disturbing is the fact that all of the semen found on the body was Robert's. The autopsy results led police to believe Robert was sexually assaulted. Now earlier, I mentioned that Joseph, Victor, and Dylan were in a threesome. Joseph and Victor were in a committed relationship, while Joseph and Dylan had a separate, submissive, and dominant dynamic. Considering the nature of their personal lives, authorities were unsurprised when they found ecstasy, sex toys, restraints, and BDSM books in Dylan's room. Still, investigators focused on a particular sex toy they found called a milking machine. Essentially, this is an electrical shock device that is put on the penis to force someone to ejaculate. When detectives found this machine, they wondered if it had been used on Robert since it could perhaps explain why his own semen was found in his body. It is also important to mention at this point in the episode that Juan was incredibly supportive of the LGBTQA community. In fact, he had been an active advocate for gay rights in college. Nonetheless, Juan was married to a woman and had no history of gay affairs. While analyzing the case, the firm police opinion was that Robert was straight. Another important discovery was made in Dylan's bedroom. Ward had actually graduated from the Culinary Institute of America in 1995 and was a trained chef. Thus, he had a cutlery set in his bedroom on August 2, 2006. The set had three pockets, one for a carving knife, a small knife, and a fork. However, the smaller knife was missing from the set and has never been recovered. Still, a remake from the manufacturer revealed that the missing knife was about four and a half inches length, perfectly corresponding to the depth of Robert's wounds. Matters are only complicated by the testimony of the detective's single witness. As Brett mentioned at the beginning of the episode, the witness was a neighbor of Ward, Price and Zaborski, named William Thomas. Thomas actually shared a wall with the room Robert was staying in and was watching the news on the night of Wohn's murder. He particularly remembers watching a news segment that aired from 11 to 11.30, around which he heard the scream from Robert's room. Detectives believe the scream was perhaps Victor entering the room and finding Wone's body. Nevertheless, this witness creates a new timeline for investigators, as the earliest the scream could have been was 11, and the latest it could have been was 11.35. 
Since Victor called the police at 11.49, that means the men could have waited as much as 49 minutes or as few as 19 minutes to call. But why? What did Dylan, Victor, and Joseph do in the time between the scream and Victor's frantic 911 dial? While the whole situation appears wildly suspicious, police were only able to conclude that the crime scene was tampered with, taking us to the legal aftermath of the murder. Eventually, all three men were prosecuted, but not for the murder of Robert Wan. Instead, police thought it would be easier to charge them with obstruction of justice. Defense attorneys argued that this claim was speculation. Each man was found not guilty due to lack of evidence, but even the judge believed that the men knew who killed Robert. It's also important to note that because they were charged for obstruction and not murder, the trio could still face trial for Robert's murder, if new evidence is uncovered that points to any of their guilt. The men were also sued in a civil case filed by Robert's wife Catherine, which was settled for an undisclosed amount of money outside of court. Now in Miami, Joseph changed his last name from Price to Anderson, Victor still goes by his full name, and Dylan changed his last name from Ward to Thomas. So what exactly happened that night in August of 2006? Was it as simple as Joseph, Victor, and Dylan claim, and an intruder broke into the house just to kill Juan? Were the three men involved in the murder? Or was it something more sinister than anything that's been put forward so far? Will the trio end up being charged for Robert's murder, or is this case doomed to remain forever unsolved? Unfortunately, we might never find out the truth behind the murder of Robert Wan. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode of Horace Axa. We really appreciate the support. This has been Brett and Amelia on the murder of Robert Wan. Of people going by, I see friends shaking hands. Say